hello, everybody, and welcome to the Madness Continuous Podcast. This is your host, Brendan Lemon. Um, I am constantly in a search, as you guys know, to try to make sense of the uh, the world that we find ourselves in, the uh, the constant future shock, present shock, uh, the disparate and myriad sources of complete uh, insanity that seem to be streaming into our brains every day from our phones and uh, our view screens. And uh, to help do that, sometimes I have guests on the show, and uh, this this week's guest is, uh, I'm very excited to interview, this is John Marmich, and you'll have to, by the way, John, tell me exactly how to pronounce your name properly, because I heard it two ways when I was uh, doing a lot of research. Uh, you, you just you just said it perfectly, John Marmish. Okay, John Marmish. All right, awesome. Um, I came across your uh, – so first of all, I should say to the audience, John is the author of several books, uh, including one of my favorite recent reads, Laughing at Nothing, which is um, actually a, almost a 15-year-old book at this point. Um, yeah. But also the Nile – yeah, you, you – um, I'm surprised. I, it feels like a fresh read when I was going through it. It's well. It's hard for me to believe that it's uh, that it's so old. It uh, yeah. It feels like it was like I was just working on it a few years ago. But time does fly. Oh my gosh. Uh, we'll get into that that book more in a second. But you're also author of <clears throat> the Nihilist, uh, which is a more recent publication, also a narrative. I should say the Nihilist Notebook, which is far. Uh, I should say even older than <laughs> laughing at nothing. Yeah. And then finally, your most recent publication that I have not cracked into yet, but I'm excited to go take a look at based on its description on Amazon, which is Cinematic Nihilism, uh, a book that explores the concept of nihilism through recent uh, media. And also, I think you – it says in the book, and this is a, a, a secondary sort of branch that would be interesting to talk about on this podcast as well, an exploration of the setting uh, of Scotland – as a, a sort of a locus for nihilism itself, is that correct? Yeah, the first two essays in that in that collection uh, focus on films that uh, uh, use Scotland as a setting. So, it uh, I did a sabbatical in Scotland, and so I had the opportunity to do some uh, some research about uh, Scottish films at the Scottish Film Archive, and uh, to kind of travel around and uh, sample the landscape of Scotland. And so, yeah, all of that research made its way into the first two chapters of the latest book. See, that's really fascinating because, as a, I should say, as a secondary point to this conversation, um, and I'll explain how I came up so that my audience knows on your work uh, in a moment as well. But I did, uh, I'm a comedian. Uh, my audience knows that, or doesn't. Maybe they think I'm 100% serious all the time, which is a terrifying <laughs> thought in its own right. But. <laughs> Uh, I came upon your work through sort of that space, and uh, interestingly, I was in Scotland uh, for about five weeks in August for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Oh, there you uh, go, yeah. So I was, ex- and I was, <laughs> I was plumbing the depths of my own nihilistic experience, I suppose. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a there's, amount of time. There's definitely a lot, uh, a lot that uh, is nihilistic about that country. In fact, I think. You know, when I was there, I was telling people it felt to me as though the entire country was undergoing an existential crisis. Well, with their, uh, you know, the vote on uh, independence, and uh, they certainly have a uh, uh, an issue with alcohol consumption. <laughs> oh yeah, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it certainly fits with a country that has, um, you know, such a long traditional um, sort of, you know, legacy stretching into the past, because, you know, for me, one of the key aspects of nihilism is um, involved with the falling away from values. You know, Nietzsche talked about nihilism as um, when the highest values devaluate themselves. And so I guess it's not a big surprise that a country that has this these sorts of myths and stereotypes that are associated with it as it's moving into a modern age um, and as the country, you know, changes that uh, the culture and the people would be struggling with, you know, their relationship to tradition and values. So I think, you know, in that regard, it, uh, it certainly makes a lot of sense that uh, there are, uh, you know, there's a lot of nihilistic experience that's, uh, that's occurring in a country like that. 
See, that's really fascinating because I that makes a lot of sense to me. My family's Scottish um, from Edinburgh, actually. My family is from Glasgow. Oh, yeah. So you, you're Glaswegian. This explains uh, why I both like you and, and, do, and dislike you at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, some rivalry. kind of Rangers fan or something? <laughs> uh, stay away from that, that aspect of Scottish culture myself. <laughs> <laughs> that is very funny. Um, yeah, the, uh, so here's what I find is really fascinating about that. First of all, I'm glad that you brought up uh, Nietzsche's description of nihilism. So um, I became fascinated with the concept of nihilism through Nietzsche, as maybe many people did or have. Um, although you point out in, in your book that the concept is actually older and attributed, uh, its first usage is attributed to, I believe, Russian literature. Is that correct? Even before that, um, the first um, philosophical usages of the term were um, intended as criticisms of Kant. So Immanuel Kant was criticized by um, by his critics. His transcendental philosophy was criticized as uh, being a form of nihilism. There are apparently um, scattered usages of the term even earlier, um, but really um, the the whole concept of nihilism as this falling away and the separation from that which is valuable really picks up with Kant. And then it's sort of rediscovered, um, uh, I think, through Hegel, really, in the, in the Russian nihilists, because the, you know, the Russian nihilists, of course, were, um, were fans of you know, Hegelian philosophy and, uh, and uh, that sort of uh, um, writing. But yeah, with uh, Kant, the, Kant split the world up into phenomenal and noumenal realms. So with Kant, mm-hmm. the way that we interact with reality is by filtering um, the world through our senses. So, you know, we, we come to it. There is an objective world, according to Kant, but that objective world is always interpreted through the capacities and the uh, categories of the mind. So mm-hmm. we're never in direct contact with the objective world, uh, according to Kant's transcendental um, idealism. Everything that we experience is occurring in what he calls the phenomenal realm, which is interpreted reality. So that what that does is it sets up a, a kind of picture of the world in which we're always one step removed from objective reality, and we're stuck in a sort mm-hmm. of human interpretation of reality. And Kant's critics found that horrendous because it undermines the entire tradition of philosophy going back to at least the ancient Greeks, um, where right. the aspiration was not simply to know how the world appeared to us, but to know what the world really was. I mean, if you think about Plato, um, Plato's myth of the cave, the whole point of mm-hmm. pl- uh, platonic philosophy is to lead people out of the cave of illusion. Um, and if you um, kind of take Kantian philosophy as saying that our, our minds are like caves that we can't get out of, then you can see the problem that many people have. He's saying that um, absolute truth in the sense of objective truth is something that can never be attained. And so is ultimately credit- unknowable. Right, exactly. And his critics, you know, his critics um, dubbed that nihilism, that he had reduced the world, the real world, to nothing. Um, so his, this, this is something that his critics were very, very troubled by. Well, and it's interesting to me because you mention in the book as well, um, the, and again, the, just for everybody listening, the book that I'm referencing specifically is John's book, Laughing at Nothing, uh, Humor as a Response to Nihilism. And I'll get into the story of how I discovered this in a second, um, but for the moment we're into the philosophical weeds a little bit. Um, the 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 definition of nihilism that I this lines up a little bit with what you sort of define as nihilism in the book, I think, which is mm-hmm. and again I would invite you at any moment to correct me where I'm wrong here. Um, but the the definition that you use is sort of the nihilism is is the disparity between the attempt to attain sort of the ultimate or the, the, the true experience or the what you call the superlative in the book and the inability for humans to actually grasp or attain it. That's um, correct. Which it makes a lot of sense when you're looking at, if, if, if you are criticizing Kant, it makes sense to criticize him exactly as a nihilist in that sense, that yeah. there's, there's, there's nothing but the inability to attain the ultimate nomina um, if if it even exists, uh, 
we're we're destined to to constantly miss it. Right. We're stuck in we're stuck in our you know phenomenal interpretation of reality, and um, you know we have to despair of any sort of uh, objective truth in that regard. Um, and that's yeah, that's precisely right. I mean, the the idea here with Kant is that if the highest aspiration, if the highest ideal is truth with a capital T, independent of human interpretation, and if Kant's um, view of our relationship to the objective world is correct, then we have to despair of that sort of truth. That sort of truth becomes an illusion. And, um, you know, the term nihilism in that sense is used as a criticism. It's not used merely descriptively um, against Kant. It's supposed to be, um, you know, a, a criticism of his position as something that's horrendous. And I think that's why the term nihilism, you know, over the course of history, it's retained that sort of negative um, taint. It's got a, a sort of, you know, negative um, um, aspect to it. So when people talk about things as being nihilistic, um, generally speaking, and I, I don't think that this is, you know, uh, this is uh, something that uh, is correct ultimately, but generally speaking, uh, people use the term nihilism as uh, as a criticism, as uh, as a an insult. Yeah, well, you're uh, maybe not. I don't. I don't know if you're unique necessarily. Is maybe a strong way to describe it. But I know that you're amongst a unique group of of philosophers who see a lot of opportunity in nihilism for productive um, modes of thinking or productive, uh, there could be a lot of productive things that can occur within a sort of a nihilistic space. And, and that's, that is exactly what you attempt to do um, in the book, Laughing at Nothing. And just to describe to my audience how I came upon this book, I was watching <laughs> a video on Wisecrack on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yeah, I'm sure you're aware that they referenced you in this video by now, but um, it was very interesting because it was talking about the Joker from uh, <laughs> Batman. Batman. And mm-hmm. yeah, and what's fascinating about that is that there is a this the Joker's character, and I'm familiar with the Joker from um, actually my experience studying um, uh, extracurricularly um, lots of. Uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, Carl Jung, theories of mythology and archetype. And the Joker represents a very old type of archetype, which is this trickster character who sort of, you know, plays by his own rules and, and exists essentially only to upset and foil the system, which to a Western audience is terrifying because so much of our experience is based entirely upon the idea of rule and law and order. Um, which is why the Joker is such a terrifying character. But what's interesting about this Wisecrack video is that they bring up, they're like, John Marmish in his book, <laughs> Laughing at Nothing. And I was like, hold on a second. I like freaked out. I paused the video. I'm like, wait a minute. Somebody did some serious, like serious academic philosophical work to try to understand how humor can be a response to nihilism. Like in the title, <laughs> Laughing at Nothing, I thought... Was so well, freaking good. It was. Uh, it was certainly a surprise and kind of. A, a, I don't know. A compliment to be uh, to be classified alongside Baudrillard and Jean Paul Sartre, and uh, yeah. oh, and Arthur Schopenhauer. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Well, you reference. It's funny because Schopenhauer's concept of humor informs your concept of or or your uh, your sort of your work and humor as a relationship to, to, to nihilism. And it was so fascinating because I was like, these are all these heavy hitter guys. Like I pulled my girlfriend into like the you know, into the room and I was like, you got to watch this video. And she's like, I don't know who any of these people are. When it came out, there were a number of students over at uh, the school I teach at college or Marin who started sending me a barrage of emails. <laughs> saying, Did you know that you're appearing in this video? <laughs> Yeah, it was so good because it was like, especially again, John Baudrillard, and they referenced the Transparency of Evil, which is one of my favorite, favorite books. And it's so funny because uh, I remember reading that book, and he wrote that he, much like your book, Laughing at Nothing, actually, he wrote that book, you know, twenty five years ago, and uh-huh. or something or something like that. And I remember reading it now, probably almost, pro- man, probably that almost a decade ago now, but. I remember reading that book and being like, oh, my God, John, it feels like John Baudrillard wrote this a week ago. Like, and, and again, just speaking to the 
the, how how fresh the your book feels. I think it, you're in good company and for and for totally good reasons. Uh, I can see why they cited you amongst all these guys because I not only is your book good, it's fresh and it it has a kind of take on the you know conceit of what they're trying to do in the at least in the um uh wisecrack video uh that i think has staying power as well so but uh, I, yeah, I think times have changed too um i mean when i was you know when i first got into nihilism i mean i was a teenager when i first heard the word nihilism it um you know i was into like punk rock and you know weird literature and all of that and i was used yeah, to reading a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of um uh hp lovecraft <laughs> Uh, I did. I actually, I didn't read much Lovecraft. Um, I, what's his name? Graham Masterton. <laughs> He's kind of an obscure horror author. He wrote The Manitou. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It was made into a movie. He's really bad. Really bad. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say he's a really bad author, but I mean, really pulp, <laughs> pulp sort of horror fiction. But yeah. um, you know, when I was a teenager, I media critics that I would read would use the term nihilism to criticize all the stuff that I liked. Like punk is nihilistic, you know, horror fiction is nihilistic, horror movies are nihilistic. And I started to think that if that's the case, then maybe I'm a nihilist. So I think the, you know, the, the, the negativity, the, you know, the, uh, the criticism maybe escaped me and I thought it was more of a description. And, you know, so as a teenager, I started to, um, explored nihilism, not fully understanding, you know, the philosophical roots of it, but I did quickly come to discover that, you know, at that time, here we're talking about, you know, 1980s, um, that no one really was talking about nihilism in a positive sense. And, hmm. you know, now, now I think times have changed and people's sensibilities have changed. The world as a whole has changed. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, um, the character of nihilism um, is, you know, applicable to uh, to the world we're living in now, and I think a lot of people, instead of thinking of nihilism as a negative circumstance, I think they've come to see it as something that really does describe, you know, the nature of our world these days. So, you know, uh, there are more and more authors who seem to be advocating a kind of positive nihilism than there were when uh, when I was a teenager. So, I, you know, I, I, maybe that accounts for you know the the what you're what you're seeing is the timeliness of these works about you know the um, the positive aspects of nihilism. I mean, I could see that as potentially the case. My understanding of nihilism. I mean, I I you know I have to say that your your sort of um uh tr what do I want to say genealogy of the concept this the the short uh, history you give in the book is fascinating because and then to your point that you just made is fascinating because it you know you open up a space in which you're like okay sure there's you know it's impossible to grasp maybe the the ultimate reality or the ultimate goodness or in aiming at the superlative we are destined to fall short and that on one account is a cause for despair but maybe it also isn't and here's a lot of reasons why and here are the ways that we can kind of deal with it Mm -hmm. I thought that was really fascinating because, um, and I don't know if you say it in exactly these words, but I was reading um, not just the book, but a couple of essays uh, or reviews of the book, pardon me. And I remember thinking, it really feels like, you know, this speaks to Albert Camus' point where he says, you know, we have to imagine Sisyphus as happy as he's rolling this rock up this hill. And he, well, that makes a ton of sense then to have space for humor and occupy that. That if Sisyphus is ro rolling this boulder up this hill for all eternity but is constantly cracking jokes and approaching like you mentioned in the book the example you have is the man going to the gallows on on a monday and says oh what a great start to the week and you're like that's funny and the happiness is not you know it's not unmitigated happiness it's happiness you know as one aspect of you know, uh, of, uh, your reaction to the world. I think happiness can coexist with distress and despair and, you know, um, the negative emotions that uh, human beings are complicated. And one of the things that, you know, I find, you know, tiring about much philosophy is the attempt to, you know, paint the world as just a wonderful place when it, does have wonderful aspects, but it's also got horrible aspects. And to deny the horrible aspects of the world, I 
think, um, you know, is insulting. You know, one of your videos um, that I thought was really, really interesting was um, one of the ones where you were talking about um, a failed uh, um, comedy routine. And oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the attitude that you brought to that was precisely what I think of as kind of like laughing at nihilism. It's, you know, there's, there's this feeling that, you know, you failed and that something has gone wrong. And yet you take a sort of meta perspective on yourself and put it into a positive light and kind of by placing it into a larger project or context that, you know, does justice both to, the despair you're feeling, but also conquers it with a kind of humorous attitude. And that's, you know, that's what I think is the power of humor is that it's, it's powerful. It, um, you know, it gives, it gives a person the ability to put things into context and to master them. So, I mean, that goes right along with what we were talking about with, uh, with Nietzsche, who of course, you know, wanted us to be strong and humor was one of the things that he thought um, was a sign of strength because when you take a humorous attitude towards something, you you know you're you're putting yourself in a position where it, it doesn't hurt you. You know you're taking you're demanding pleasure from something that would otherwise be painful. So you know I, that's I think that you know that video of you uh, talking about your failure on stage I think is you know a perfect example of how humor can be you know it can be. It could be a powerful sort of, uh, you know, um, um, cure to unmitigated despair. Well, it's interesting because I think you, it's Karen Carr, who I think you talk, who you cite a little bit in the book as well, who talks about um, humor as, you know, in, in order to, you, you automatically are sort of superior to the, to the position or to the context or the situation, because if you're able to joke about it, it automat it, it sort of removes you from being affected by it in a strange way. And um, there's a lot of, I mean, the ability to capture exactly what happens there. And you invoke, I think, Freud, who has a maybe the only definition that kind of made sense to me, in that there's a there's a there's an emotional charge that would have otherwise gone towards um, f- feeling an emotion of despair or of or what have you that then is instead uh, sort of charged out through the laughter or, or the, you know, the, the good feelings that arise out of, um, humor. Um, I think it's, it's interesting, by the way, I bomb only all the time, I should say, (laughs) because if there's a relationship that anybody has with nihilism, it might no, never be stronger than the comedian's relationship with the feelings of complete impotence and uselessness they have in, their desire to make every crowd love them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the idea I mean, you're aspiring <laughs> towards, and you know, if it's a if it's a an ideal that's so you know so magnificently high, you're bound to fail. But there's some you know there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of um, uh, no, nobility in the aspiration towards something that is so you know so uh, uh, you know so high, such a high ideal. Well, and the only attitude that you can end up taking with it, I mean, and having, I've done stand-up comedy for 15 years, uh, and every time I say that, I have to almost, I feel like I have to apologize for not being more famous for some reason, but uh, the only, you know, the only attitude you can take is is, is one in which you're either attempting to amuse yourself uh, through watching your own failures, or your you're a t- you, there's some other you have to have some relationship with it other than just recognizing the failure because you can, you can never move on from it and this is and I think this is kind of speaking towards some, kind of the essence of what you're what you're getting at and and maybe why it resonated with me so much when I was reading it is because you know we can we, we you have to find some positive and maybe it's not exactly humor but may, maybe not humor as laughter and comedy per se, but there's some positive emotion that you have to have that can lead you out of this situation of despair, or you'll simple, simply never get on, out of it. I think that it was maybe Nietzsche who said the only answer to nihilism is suicide. And you're like, well, yeah, if you let the whole fucking house burn down on top of you, but like otherwise, you know, just run outside and of the, of the fire or something. Well, and yeah, I mean, you know, what you're saying it kind of highlights for me why it is that I, you know, I'm comfortable 
calling myself a nihilist now because I think that this this sort of dynamic, you know, this nihilistic incongruity is a feature of all human existence. I I know that there are those people, you know, like uh, religious, uh, you know, mystics, you know, or maybe super scientists, uh, you know, who believe that they've, you know, they've touched the absolute. But, you know, I've come to the, the position in my life where I think that that's generally speaking an illusion. I think that part of the human condition is, you know, whether it's aspiring towards, you know, the perfect comedy routine or, you know, as a philosopher aspiring towards articulating some sort of truth, you know, or whether, you know, as a, as a political leader trying to, you know, uh, uh, create a just world, that all of these high ideals are ultimately unattainable. But the fact that they're unattainable is not unequivocally negative. It's like an engine that drives human activity. Um, you know, and part of that, you know, part of that activity is the feelings of negativity that's involved in falling short of short of your goals. But without that, then, you know, there's no motivation for further aspiration. And so, you know, I, you know, as a nihilist, I mean, I do, I do think that that, that description of the human condition is a correct one. And I don't think it's normatively, I don't think it's a bad thing either. I think it has these, you know, these positive aspects. So, um, you know, for me, nihilism definitely is not a, you know, it's not a, an unequivocally negative, um, you know, term. It describes something real in the world. And, mm. you know, as part of the world, I think there is something, something positive and, uh, you know, um, um, affirmative about it. Well, I think especially to, you know, you mentioned that there's, there's some people, super scientists or, you know, may, maybe even politicians or God forbid I use the term as social justice warriors who think that they maybe are, are, have touched some, you know, transcendental absolute uh, and, and have a, a sense of, you know, of that maybe perfection, if that's even the right word to use to describe it, but. I think that humor loves nothing more than people who take themselves very seriously. So it's amazing because I think that, you know, this, this, this idea that, you know, maybe there's a project and again, a politician is a great example who there's a project that someone's undertaking to try to make the world a better place. And someone who doesn't have a healthy sense of humor around themselves or around the things that they're taking seriously, I think we, we naturally, all people sort of naturally get a feeling of um, a discomfort with people who take themselves even too seriously. Yeah, um, I, well, and, and I wonder. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think that the you know the humor there comes not from the person who takes themselves seriously, because you know the the person who's you know absolutely self serious, they see no incongruity between you know themselves and what they're aspiring towards. They think they're perfect. It's the people, yeah. you know, like you or me who are standing outside and who observe the, you know, the, the incongruity between what they think of themselves and how they really appear that, um, you know, uh, that uh, find humor in those types of people. Well, I think it, it, it's, there's, it's because they're, you know, they, you're, I, so I'm glad you make that distinction because I think it's that this is the problem that is not, it was, it was something that I wanted to talk with you about briefly, but I didn't want to get into it with you too much, both because I don't think you've spoken or written about this concept um, in any of your work, but it's interesting because you happen to exist in academia, is that um, the, you know comedy right now is challenging um, for all the reasons it's normally challenging uh, when you're not funny, uh, but... It's also challenging because there are lots and lots of subjects that are people crowds, particularly in cities, and particularly in cities like Chicago, uh, where I am currently, who are very very sensitive to any subject matter or specific terms that you use, or uh, or anything, and it makes comedy slightly challenging. And that part of the reason is that they take themselves very seriously. And they take their the things that they're doing very seriously. And I think to your point, they don't see any incongruity with their behavior and anything else or their, their worldview, not just behavior, but worldview, behavior, beliefs, um, and any 
situations they're in. Um, and it, it, it's very interesting to me because it feels like, you know, one of the criticisms I read, just to draw this back to sort of the subject at hand, and one of the, in one of the criticisms or reviews I read of your, of your book, Laughing at Nothing, um, they took the example that you made specifically of uh, the, you said the humor, what a, what a humorous situation it would be if, you know, we see two cars, uh, we see a car accident, that's a tragedy, it's terrible, but if two ambulances were to hit each other, and then the drivers who were at once first driving it, the ambulance, uh, you know, the actual, um, what's the term, me- medics, uh-huh. receiving medical care from the patients who they had just been taking to the hospital, I think that image is f- fucking hilarious, <laughs> to be per- perfectly honest. And uh, then the but the the reviewer of your book said that's a that's maybe funny, but let's imagine now that it's September 11th and you know it's the World Trade Center, but there are people carrying fire, uh, you know, firemen out of the building. Would that be as funny? And my feeling about it is. Okay, maybe that exactly wouldn't be that funny, but it's not going to be that funny because you you brought it into this context in which you did not you made it not funny. Mm-hmm. Like a lot mm-hmm. of what what we're talking about here has to do with, and you say you you mention it again in the book that humor is as much how something is done as the fact that it is just done or the subject matter that's involved with it. Yeah, it's and an attitude. It's humor. Humor is an attitude, and it. I, I mean. It, the way, say, for example, in the you know the uh, the criticism you're saying uh, that draws on 9/11, yeah, the fact that we're not able to take a humorous attitude towards you know that particular um, catastrophe tells us something about ourselves. The fact yeah. that you know that we can take a humorous attitude towards something you know like the, the ambulance example, which incidentally um, that was. Uh, something that was inspired by Mad Magazine. I remember that for some reason it stuck in my head from uh, when I was a kid. You know how Mad Magazine used to have these little, they were like little cartoons in the margins of the, of the pages. And yeah, one of them I remember showed, this. Yeah, the, the Lusitania hitting the Titanic and then the rescue boats hitting one another as they were rescuing people off of those, you know, those boats. But, you know, the fact, the fact that we can take a humorous attitude towards those types of things, but not something like 9-11. I mean, to me, what that, um, what that shows is that, you know, we're, we're not in a position mentally to, riot, to um, you know, to distance ourselves from something like 9-11. I mean, it's, you yeah, know, or it's specifically, or, or just specifically the example the guy gave with the, the firefighters and the people carrying them out. Like I, I wrote a joke. I lived in, I lived in France uh, in 2013 and did a lot of stand-up comedy. And I wrote a joke where I said um, I was talking about Ryanair. I don't know if you've ever flown the Ryanair flight service in France, but it's it's a it's essentially a more frustrating and painful version of Spirit Airlines in the United States. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. It's a, uh-huh. it's an airline that is um, it's it if buses could fly, if Greyhound could fly, they would be Ryanair. Um, <laughs> And I wrote this bit uh, about Ryanair flight service in Europe, and I, I was just talking about how frustrated and how angry I was, and I kept getting more and more worked up. And finally, the punchline of the whole bit is I said, I hate Ryanair. Ryanair is so painful and uncomfortable. It's like flying in hell. In fact, I wish that Mohammed Atta and the rest of the 9-11 hijackers were on a nonstop series of Ryanair transfer flights in the afterlife. And... It's one of these, th- and it, it, we get a huge laugh over there because those people fly Ryanair all the time, and they they, uh-huh. they appreciate how ridiculous it is. And it, there's the the idea of like, it, it, I mean, the idea of a bunch of nine eleven hijackers ending up in an afterlife in which they have to now consistently fly on the worst airplane. <laughs> right, right. Is so I just think it's so funny and. that's a 9-11 joke and the context of it is different and then you know maybe there are things and i can appreciate that this is potentially true there are things that we can't really make jokes about because there's a way to approach them that isn't funny and if you try to approach them that way it just isn't going to happen yeah in the same way maybe go ahead go ahead that's what well nietzsche um you know nietzsche he says that that's precisely what the holy is the holy is that at which you cannot laugh. 
Yeah. And I do it's think a sacred, that it's a sacred concept. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's I mean, you know, I think something like, you know, like um, 9-11 has taken on this. It's almost like a, you know, a post-religious holiness um, for Americans. Yeah. It's I mean, I went to the 9-11 memorial yeah. and that's the feeling that you have, at least until you get to the, uh, you know, the gift shop. Um, but you know, <laughs> oh, oh, man, <laughs> but it, you know, the, the, the oh, memorial was, hold on, hold, wait, uh-huh. hold on, John. I don't, I, we cannot move on from that. <laughs> wait, is there for real a gift shop at yeah, like the ground zero? <laughs> there's a gift shop. Yep. Yeah. Oh, what do they possibly have there? <laughs> It's, you know, memorial. It's, I, it's been a number of years since I went there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they had, oh, you know, books and, you know, memorial, uh, you know, memorial, I don't know, plaques and stuff. It was, yeah, never, weird. It was very weird. Never forget just, in your own home. <laughs> well, and, you know, I'll tell you, I went to uh, visit um, New York City right after um, 9-11, before, you know, the memorial went up and there were still you know, flyers up on the, on the chain link fences for people that were missing. It was very, you know, very unsettling oh and, God, and so kind heavy, of um, yeah. upsetting. But when we were walking down the street, I do recall there were vendors who were selling postcards of the planes hitting the buildings. Oh I didn't buy God. any. I wish, serious? I wish I would have oh, bought some because oh, I don't, oh I don't know God. if anyone believes me these days, but, but I, I distinctly recall oh, looking wow. at these, postcards and going holy cow i can't i can't believe that someone's selling these so oh you know that, that 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 is such a that is a level of bad taste that is so <laughs> it's, it's well, just a it, caricature of itself oh my god yeah and it, well and it illustrates you know part of the point i think that you know we're talking about here that there are different people have different capacities to distance themselves from things you know, yeah. for for a lot of us, it's really difficult to, you know, look at 9-11 as something, you know, to laugh at. But apparently there are people who are able to at least distance themselves emotionally from it to the point where they profit off of it, you know, where they sell memorabilia or postcards and such. And I think that, you know, that's part of what humor does, too. Um, it reveals who your social group is and who you're allied with. Um, you know, just yeah. think about like, you know, um, uh, racial humor, or ethnic humor, or sexual humor. A lot of people are offended by it because they, you know, they feel as though they're being, um, you know, targeted by it. They, they feel like they're on the outs of that type of humor. Um, and so, you know, when people laugh at jokes or, you know, when they take a humorous attitude about something, I think it also sort of defines a you know, it defines the norms that you're working within, the social norms. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it gives a, it gives a sense of the, the group that you feel you're a part of, which, you know, it can be good and it can be bad. You know, there's, um, well, it's, it's interesting to me because there's a, I would argue that people making jokes about nine, you know, nine about September 11th and the, and the planes hitting, uh, the world trade center on that day, many of those jokes are more respectful of that situation than someone making a postcard of the of a photo and trying to profit off of it that right. I, it's strange because there's a level of um and again this is a slight pivot from i think the main thrust of the conversation in terms of uh humor attempting to to as a response to nihilism, but it, it feels like uh, there are many people who take a little, you know, overly seriously some of their subject matter to the point where they're not open to the concept that humor could even be a respectful response to to something that, you know, we, we don't lampoon things we don't have a certain amount of respect for in a, in a strange way. Right. I, you know, nobody, and then maybe this is a change in, you know, t- in the way that culture or humor has ex- exists sort of in culture, comedy exists in culture. But, you know, I don't think that anybody wants to attack targets that are, are so, that they can't defend themselves or, or can't, um, you know, can't, uh, don't have some pow- relationship, power relationship to them. Like one of the, 
the, to to the point. I don't know if I'm doing a good job communicating this at the moment, but yeah, you know, yeah. one of the points that you sort of make is that you know humor is a response to a situation to make ourselves sort of um, superior to it by distancing ourselves from it and having a superior take because we can conceive of it from a place of distance. I don't think anybody yeah, yeah. is, a, you know, therefore then attempting to have humor in the face of something they are not, uh, they don't, that isn't, that they're not trying to overcome in terms of superiority. No one makes jokes about things that are automatically inferior to them, is what I mean. Uh, that's kind of what it, what it feels like to me. I see what you're saying. And I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in my view, humor, it, it's ambiguous. It does, it does a lot of things. Now, I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of traditional um, uh, philosophical you know, views on humor that try to isolate one or the other, you know, function that it has. So, you know, like in Aristotle's Poetics, you find, you know, the first, probably the first um, articulation of this kind of superiority theory of, of humor, mm -hmm. where where humor has this aggressive aspect to it. It's, you know, it's us laughing at someone. And that certainly does seem to be a part of some humor. Um, I mean, it's, it, it hurts to be laughed at. It's, you know, when, uh, when you're being laughed at, you feel as though you're being belittled. And it's a real... Well, yeah, uh, but, but at the same time, but hold on, at the same time, just as you were mentioning before, that there's a community, there's an aspect of humor that can create community. There are, sure. there are people that were... Uh, you know that part of your relationship with them is that you you are sort of mutually laughing with one another, even though it's technically at the expense of of one of you. You know, mm -hmm. um, I you know comedians have this relationship with each other all the time, where we're constantly cracking jokes at one another's expense, even though we 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 mean it in good humor. That I I uh -huh. I, ne I never mean any of these uh, seriously to injure you. Right, right. And, you know, Freud in his book talks about, um, uh, you know, comedy of the situation, which is the, the type of humor that occurs when you, you share, uh, you know, a common sort of situation with someone. And it's not that you're laughing at the person, but it's almost like you're laughing at the situation that you recognize that you also could be in. So maybe mm -hmm. that's something like you and, you know, your, um, um, your, you know, your, uh, your colleagues. Um, you know, poking fun at one another. It's like you're all you're all in the same um, sort of you know uh, um, uh, you know tribe. comedic business. Yeah, tribe, same tribe. And you know, this is a, an affirmation that yeah, I you know I know what it's like to be in your situation. And it's like laughing at that rather than laughing you know at the person specifically for a, for belittling effect. And that way, I think humor um, can be used to you know foment connections understanding between people like you know sitcoms um i think uh, work that way you know i was watching some old sitcom what was it like welcome back cotter i don't know if you oh boy yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and i was i was shocked at how unfunny the show was from my adult <laughs> eyes because i remember it being absolutely hilarious when i was a kid and now i watch it it's like this this is not funny at all nothing's really funny about it there's no jokes there's yeah. you know there's just um these catchphrases and such and i think in a case like that you have something like the comedy of the situation you know it's like if you remember what it's like to be in high school or to have you know a special teacher uh the you know the comedy of the show comes not from you know an out loud out loud kind of laughter but more like the comfort you feel of you know watching a situation that you're familiar with so yeah, yeah, in that way I think that, you know, um humor can it can foment a bond between people. So it's not like humor always is belittling and it's not like it always foments a bond. I think it you know, there can be admixtures of those and you know, the one of the other uh traditional theories is the relief theory, which claims that what humor does is that it you know, it lets you blow off steam and Aristotle uh, you know, he kind of alludes to this as well. Um, his poetics. And I think that, um, you know, that's also part of the value of, uh, of humor is that, you know, taboo feelings, things that aren't polite, you know, under a comedic circumstance, it's okay to say those things because, you know, it, it lets you blow off these repressed feelings, these feelings that civilization says is not polite, you know, they're not polite to uh, express under other circumstances.
I think all of those can coexist, you know, at one given time. I don't think it's the case that all humor is just belittling or all humor just foments community or all humor just, you know, blows off taboo um, feelings. I think, you know, there, there are degrees of all of those things in humor. That's, you know, in Laughing at Nothing, that's why, you know, I, I think that all of those kind of fall under the rubric of incongruity because in, you know, in the um, superiority theories of humor, you have the incongruity between the superior and the inferior that's, you know, that's being played upon. In relief theories, you have the incongruity between, um, you know, the, uh, the expression and the repression. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, so I think that incongruity is sort of like the, the structure that underlies all of those, those various functions that humor can play. I yeah, hope that wasn't exactly... too much. <laughs> no, 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 it's not too much at all. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that I'm glad you brought it back to that point because one of the things that I thought was an interesting point in your book made was that, you know, the, the potential, you know, there's a phrase that I'm fond of, uh, from a guy named Jordan Harbinger, uh, who runs a podcast as well, um, who I know from college actually, um, that goes, uh, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And there's something about your explanation of Kant's reaction to incongruity and the concept of incongruity. We're saying like, this is obviously something that we should despair at. Well, it's, you know, if, if the only way you have to approach an incongruity is through attempting to uh, philosophize and find a solution to get to the, the, you know, the superlative, well then, yeah, you probably should despair and feel shitty about it because you don't have anything else you could do. But if you're, you know, if you, if, if, if that is only one of a number of appropriate responses potentially to um, to the incongruity and humor is another one, well, then it's really not so bad. And, and maybe to that same point, just to turn this around and get back to the September 11th example, because we can't ever forget it, is the, uh, you know, maybe humor is not always the best response to an incongruity as well, that I think that this hit me recently as a comedian because, you know, um, this social justice uh, sort of train that is attempting to to basically smash everything in its path is um is really challenging to deal with as a comedian um because it feels like you like i should talk about it does that make sense like it feels like i should for some reason Mm -hmm. but when i was over in scotland i didn't i didn't really think about any sort of social issues or social justice issues um i was focused on doing comedy every day and and frankly, in Scotland, the, the same sort of social pressures do not just exist as they do in Chicago. And after that amount of time, I just was, I, I really was like, you know what? The problem is that I, I, the reason I can't write about social justice issues is that I really don't have anything to say. And I don't think that my joking about it is the appropriate response that I should have, you know? Mm-hmm. And I felt a huge sense of relief at that because there was an incongruity between my desire i think to 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 see the world in a certain kind of way and the fact that the world isn't that way and then my also desire to joke about that and my inability to do it and the appropriate response to that is maybe not humor uh it's maybe just recognition and resignation which is in itself a kind of liberating a a a movement that one can make it at an incongruity as well potentially yeah, well, I think I, there's there's a lot of um, things that in, a lot of responses that incongruity can um, can spur. You're absolutely right, you know, and um, and humor is one amongst many. I mean, horror is another, <laughs> you know, yeah. puzzle solving is another. Um, I think that there are certain problems that maybe are not appropriate for humor. Um, those those problems are the ones that we're really really concerned with and we really really want to solve. I mean, humor doesn't solve anything. It doesn't make anything better. Um, I think that, you know, the, the power that humor has is to encourage us to linger in the presence of an unsolvable incongruity and to gain pleasure from it rather than gaining mm. pain from it. Now, you know, there are, there are, when you go to, say, like a foreign country and you do comedy, maybe um, part of, you know, the, the ease you feel is that you're not, in your tribe anymore. And so you don't feel like you have to, I don't know, you know, honor, 
you know, the background assumptions of, you know, the people from your native culture. And maybe there's a more understanding on the part of, uh, you know, people in another country that, oh, you're, you're, you're not one of us. And so we're not, you know, we're not threatened by how you're different. You know? So I guess what, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm coming back around to is this idea that there are certain situations in which incongruity can be threatening. And when incongruity is threatening, humor maybe isn't the, you know, the go-to response. Um, you know, the uh, incongruity uh, maybe is better, you know, dealt with by, you know, figuring out the problem, solving the puzzle, or, um, you know, uh, running away from it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's certainly, uh, you know, one response to, to dangerous incongruities. Um, I think that in this way... <laughs> I'm just, that's funny, uh, because I think that just described why I moved to France for, you know, six months in 2013, <laughs> running away from dangerous Running away. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, you know, in fact, I, humor, you know, humor shares some similarities with um, things like, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of sublime in aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I am, but I would love it if you could describe it for my audience because I did encounter, I did want to talk to you about that, and I'm glad you brought it up because you mention it a handful of times in the book, and I think that it's relevant to the discussion, especially with with incongruity and with and with humor. Right. Well, yeah, the sublime is this, you know, this aesthetic concept or this aesthetic, you know, response to being overwhelmed by something that could potentially destroy you. So Kant talks about the sublime in um, uh, critique of judgment um, as uh, something that's spurred on when, say, like a human being is in the presence of um, you know, a great thunderstorm or you know, the ocean as it's heaving up um, during, a, you know, during a storm or great mountains. Um, it's when the human being feels dwarfed by something that could potentially destroy mm-hmm. them. Um, but under those circumstances, when there's nothing that can be done about that type of incongruity between the finitude of the individual and the you know perce- or the, uh, the the experienced infinitude of some sort of um, grand phenomenon, um, the sublime, according to Kant, is um, you know is one of the responses. And this is that feeling of awe, the feeling of vast respect for something that's so much bigger than yourself. And that's, in some ways, it's the polar opposite of the humorous response, because in the humorous response, of course, you know, there's this element of superiority, I think, where, you know, the humorist feels like they're making themselves bigger than the phenomenon that they can't change. Whereas in the sublime, you have the recognition that... Of inferiority. Exactly, that I'm smaller than this phenomenon, but... But the response is kind of similar in the sense that there is not an attempt to change anything. It's just sitting there lingering with the phenomenon and gaining pleasure from it. It's a different type of pleasure. You know, in the case of the sublime, it's this, you know, this, uh, this sort of um, awe-struck type of pleasure. When in the case of humor, it's, you know, it's uh, a kind of amusement, the amused pleasure that you get from it. So, But each of yeah. them, I think, makes sense because they're both responses to... Uh, a, a certain kind of nihilism anyway, I suppose, which is that this nihilistic incongruity of one feeling um, yep. uh, 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 in, unable to properly absorb or, or, or deal with the situation sort of at hand, that there's a, there's a, there's a, a recognition of one's own fallibility and, and inability to properly um, deal with the situation that's occurring. Yeah, there's there's an irresolvable incongruity. Um, it's it's something that nothing can be done about, and uh, you know the um, the the options here are to you know experience some sort of negative um, reaction or some sort of positive reaction. And you know both the sublime and the humorous responses are, you know, I think of them as you know demanding pleasure from an otherwise unpleasant situation. So well, and, I, and you could see just just to, just to, to to use the example from earlier, I could see a someone going to the gallows on a Monday and having a sublime reaction, recognizing I'm okay. There's nothing I can do here. I I'm I'm going to to meet my fate, and I'm choosing to take this in a very sort of calm and sublime manner, maybe very stoically, 
and appreciating and maybe even savoring my last moments of, of potential, you know, existence here by quietly kind of absorbing them and taking a certain amount of pleasure from it. And that being an equally valid response as, you know, cracking a joke about how it's a bad start to the week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Or maybe <laughs> crying, you know, I mean, there's, there's all sorts yeah. of different ways that people could respond. And I, you know, I, I, I guess I, I prefer the idea of the humorous response because of its demand for pleasure, one, but I also have this respect for the, I don't know what you want to call it, the, uh, the sassiness of someone who, you know, who sets themselves, <laughs> sets themselves up, you know, above something like depth, you know, there's something really, you know, uh, really, I don't know, uh, really admirable uh, to me about someone who you know is is rebellious even in the face of uh, you know of death. Yeah, well, because it, I think it speaks to one's maybe co- commitment to strength of self and strength of character to 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 it to, to be superior or sort of spit in the face of uh, you know a lion, so to speak, because that's a big uh, impending situation. And in the same way that, you know, a storm is kind of unstoppable if it was to come in, you know, people shoving you toward, toward the hangman is I think equally as, as potentially, uh, uh, you know, uh, terrifying. Well, or more so, I suppose. Well, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've over the, the course of the years, um, that, you know, I've become more and more comfortable with, uh, you know, with my own nihilism. I've had countless people, you know, kind of, you know, insult my, you know, my position by saying, well, if you're really a nihilist, you should kill yourself. Or if you're really a nihilist, why do you do anything? Why is it you, you know, why do you write these books? Why do you, why do you go to work? Why do you do anything? And it seems to me that that's like a complete misunderstanding of, uh, you know, of nihilism. Sure, those are all possible responses to nihilism. You could do all those things. But there's nothing in nihilism that um, that uh, um, keeps one from from writing great books or you know doing great comedy or you know doing all sorts of you know creative sorts of things. I mean that's Nietzsche's distinction between the active and the passive nihilist. I mean he even recognized that you know there were these options. I mean a passive nihilist is one who just yeah who crumbles in the face of you know the void, whereas the active nihilist is liberated. And I don't know, I found yeah. that there, there are an awful lot of students who, you know, when we talk about these types of nihilistic issues in class, I'm finding more and more students who seem to find nihilism liberating rather than crushing. You know, and again, I mean, this goes back to what we were saying about the change in the times. I think that maybe there's a change in at least American culture and maybe worldwide culture, which maybe felt oppressed by you know the um the claim that there were there was a god that um you know objectively lorded it over the uh you know the world or that there were certain you know moral rules which were objectively true that can that can be very very crushing and today maybe there you know there's a whole generation of people who feel liberated by the thought that none of those things really exist that they're mental projections that you know, perhaps may be useful for my own projects, but don't, uh, you know, don't result in some sort of punishment when I die or some sort of, you know, uh, uh, some sort of, uh, um, uh, um, you know, benefit after, after death. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's interesting because you're edging into another thing that I wanted to talk to you about. By the way, we're running up on time. I should let you know. Okay. Um, okay. And we didn't even get to a whole host of things I wanted to talk to you about. So if you're open to it, maybe we'll have a part two sometime. But um, my um, yeah, I, w- I wanted to mention that you know one of the 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 potential interpretations that you have here is all is an, an almost Buddhist interpretation of the sense of you know life is suffering and because we can't connect with the sort of the superlative. And the way to have a a good relationship with your own life and 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 the lives of those around you is by taking, like sort of like you suggest, as a, a humorous attitude toward things that that are naturally out of control. You know, one of and, and just again, and this speaks to my core audience. This will resonate with is that, you know, one of the things I'm I've begun to accept a lot more as I've gotten older is that you know, my own limitations as an individual, I have to have a relationship with that. I can't ultimately make them go away. I can't pretend that they're not going to be there. And I can't force myself 
to do things that I can't force myself to do. It's just the way of life. And having a relationship with my own, you know, uh, my own um, shortcomings and having a humorous relationship where I go, oh, there I am again, man, trying to, trying to get, you know, get drunk on a Friday, even though I've got a bunch of projects I want to do on a Saturday or something. Mm-hmm. That's just Brendan running that thing again. It, it, it almost is, it's not as, it's not an abdication of kind of agency or responsibility, or it's not a getting rid of the, the, the idea of a, of a pursuit of a, maybe a perfect human project or a, a perfect project in one's own life. But it's almost a recognition of like, you know what, I'm, we're not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be perfect and I'm not going to pretend like I should be. And there is a lot of, I think, freedom both in terms of new life decisions that can be opened up in, in that space for an individual. But then also I think a lot of freedom to appreciate things that you were formerly that were impossible to appreciate beforehand that yeah, taking yeah. a humorous take and, and using sort of humor as a response to, to that uh, inability to, to, to be perfect or the superlative opens one up to an entire range of experience that one would have never had before. Yeah. I think that, I think that that's, you know, that's what's what humor is really good at is that because it has, it's, it's focused towards different types of incongruities, you know, incongruous phenomenon are these phenomena that don't naturally fit with one another. They don't sit well with one another. And so, you know, when taking a humorous attitude towards, you know, one's own life, I think it, the humorous attitude, you know, is, uh, is paying tribute to both, yeah, the part of you that, you know, wants to complete the projects as well as the part of you that does things that undermine the projects. You know, it's, it's, it's a full view. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an attitude that pays tribute to the entirety of what it means to be a human rather than, yeah, trying to be perfect, trying to be one end of the spectrum rather than the other. You know, you mentioned um, Buddhism. I, I agree with you that I think that there is something sort of therapeutic about, uh, about humor in this regard. The way I think that it, it departs from Buddhism though, is that, you know, the, um, the Eightfold Path in Buddhism is designed to eliminate desire for the unattainable. And I, I think that in humorous nihilism, you have just the opposite, that um, the humorous nihilist is someone who still retains a desire for the unattainable at the same time that they realize it's unattainable. So there isn't, um, you know, it's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a cure for that aspect of, uh, you know, the human condition, whereas Buddhism, as I understand it, um, you know, does offer the promise of a cure for human suffering. And again, I think right there maybe is the difference between sort of response, uh, humor and sublimation. I think that, I mean, this makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I think that we could probably dive into a much deeper discussion of comedy is um uh, or humor and comedy is a source of um sort of a um uh its physiological source being you know the id and in procreative energies i think that there's there's something there that speaks to i think an appropriate response to nihilism from that space mm-hmm. um, but that would be an entire other <laughs> probably podcast <laughs> uh i i didn't even get into the discussion with you i was it's interesting because i think one of the implications of your book um or one of the one of the explanations your book can give rather um, is why there is so many of these um, comedy news shows that are, that are uh, out today, because I think that, you know, we more so than at any point in the past are presented with our own limitations as individuals in a response to the world that we find ourselves in, um, which is what, what I call, and I think um, maybe other people call present or future shock, the inability for one to distinguish or even navigate their own world due to the fact that things change so quickly. There's so much data. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's ever challenging. And I think that, you know, so many of these comedy news shows are, are, are using sort of your prescribed method here, maybe without even knowing it to try and interpret the world that we feel, um, terrifyingly vulnerable in front of. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that, um, 
you know, as uh, you know, as we said, times have changed. I think the world is, um, you know, is experienced by many people as being much more confusing and chaotic um, than it was, you know, decades ago. When I was, you know, when I was in school growing up, I, um, you know, I was taught that the world was progressing, that it was moving in a particular direction. That direction was a positive direction. You know, technology was going to save us and people were getting more and more kind and all of this. And I think that, um, you know, developments in, um, in you know, contemporary times have, show, have uh, made people think that maybe that's a myth, that mm. perhaps things are not moving in any particular direction. There's just, it feels chaotic. It feels like there's, you know, a lot of good and bad things happening, you know, in no, no particular order. And that, that's a potentially scary um, situation. And humor is, you know, I think one way of sort of dealing with that, paying, again, paying tribute to the fact that there's um, something that doesn't make sense and that I can't fix, but I refuse to be crushed by it. And so, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I would agree with you that I think a lot of these comedy news shows, you know, like Daily Show and those sorts of things, um, you know, they play off of that, I think. Yeah. And I think, I think it's helpful. I, I think that's a great, I think that's a great place to actually sum up this podcast right there because I think that's something that somebody can take away and use in their own life. I feel overwhelmed by these things, but I, f- I refuse to be crushed by them. I mean, I think that's huge. Um, I'm looking forward to reading your book on, um, on nihilism and cinema. I, f- I think that'll be very interesting. It's a series of essays, and I know it's available. It was released in late September, I think. Yeah, I'm, uh, so. it was. Uh, yeah, it's from Edinburgh University Press. So there was a different release date in the United States um, and the uh, UK. Okay. But uh, yeah, the, well, uh, it's available. I think it is available now for the nihilist on your Christmas list. That's terrific. Thank you. Uh, well, John Marmish, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We'll have to maybe discuss a, 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 a sequel maybe coming into 2018 um, after I get that big Chanel Preston boost. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've, followers. I've definitely enjoyed it. It's been a, been a pleasure talking with you. Great. Well, take care. Uh, have a good day. And meanwhile, the madness continues. <laughs>